The Deviation Podcast. fantastic people but guys slip through and they end up getting in the SEAL teams and then they screw it up for the rest of us and give it kind of give us a black eye which is which is unfortunate but not everyone is a great guy in the SEAL teams yeah um how have you I don't know if you can talk about this or not but how have you dealt with all of that so the community I think um recently the our admiral released a, a, a memo where he went on CNN or one of the news stations or he did something and he, and he talked about kind of, uh, what's the word, he, I forget the words he used, but he talked about kind of the culture issues we had in the SEAL teams. So how have you guys been dealing with that? You know, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to... I think they're trying to they're trying to change the culture and the guys who like I talked about the guys who are doing the drugs and and doing all the the bad things they're trying to change that culture so that's not um, so it's not going to happen but it's it's that's a really complex problem to try to change with you know the big things now are uniforms and haircuts and you know not being you know grooming standards and I just. I don't know if that's going to really change the issue because the issue is not, you know, having a uniform and haircut, they think it's going to change. And like, I'm not sure what they're, I'm not sure how they're, they're trying to solve a problem by enforcing grooming standards and taking away uh, kind of personal express, freedom of expression. So I, I think what they thought it would, would be is like, okay, this, we're losing our identity because people are doing their own things and we're going to go back to uniformity and that's going to change it. But it's, it's a deep problem that's kind of, just looking at the news, it's, it's a deep problem within the SEAL community in very, very, very small doses. 95, 98, 99% of the guys are, are fantastic guys and they're not going to, they have morals and they're not going to do anything like that. But it's kind of like, you know, how are you gonna how are you gonna weed out that two percent of the guys who are just not good fits for the community? I don't think it's too. I don't think it's an easy problem to deal with. No. Obviously, no, absolutely not. And and like we were talking about before, that very small percentage that is gonna screw it up and break laws and things like that, like that affects everybody. Unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately, it's it's kind of late. You get, you get painted and say, oh, you're all, you're all screwed up. And then you have the leadership is trying to do the right thing, which is trying to clean up the, clean up everyone's act. But, you know, those guys are already kicked out. Those guys are already being dealt with. They're already, you know. So now you're punishing the rest of us who have been law-abiding and, and doing very, very well at what we're doing. And we're doing the right things. And now you're, you're trying to kind of crack down on us. It's like. Now, unfortunately, everyone thinks, like, oh, you know, 
big changes, huge changes are coming out if you read the memos. And it's like, not really. I, I don't grow, I can't grow a beard. I'm not, I'm not allowed, nor am I going to downrange because I have to work with other people that if I had a beard, they'd say, well, why don't you look like the rest of us? You know, why are, why are you above the rules and we have to follow them? And it's just like, no, we, we blend in with everyone else. If we work with army counterparts who are shaving every day, we shave every day. If we work with people who don't shave every day, we don't shave every day. It's like, nothing really changes. Um, but there's still bad people downrange. We're still in the fight. We're still going to bring the fight to the enemy. That's, that's not going to change. We're not going to say, okay, well, you know, we're going to stop fighting now because, you know, someone has, there's some problems in the community. It's like, no, we're still going to keep fighting. We're going to address the problem, but we're also going to deal with real world problems because we need to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can I ask you about your, your first deployment? Like once you finished, is, it's called the Q, is the Q course, is that the final thing? Is that what that's called? Or is that the Q course yeah. is, uh, our, Army Special Forces. Got it. Okay. It's like so a S- whole nother language going into military <laughs> stuff. I'm slowly, I made the mistake of asking somebody the other day, what's your MOS? And because I use that term, they thought I knew what I was talking about. And they just went into this whole thing with so many different abbreviations. And I was like, I am so sorry. I don't know enough. Please speak more English. <laughs> so a typical, a typical path is you graduate SQT and then you show up to a SEAL team and you do a two-year cycle, six months of training, mm-hmm. uh, well, six months of school slash like getting ready, then six months of training as a troop, then six months of advanced training with other outside entities and you know brushing back up and things you're going to do downrange, and then six-month deployment. Now those numbers are squished. So I'm going to have more of a seven or eight months and four months of this, but that's it's a very fluid schedule. But that's kind of the structure of it. Okay. So then where, where did you go your, for, your first, for your first six months deployment? So I was actually in Southeast Asia for eight months. And we were advising the Philippine Special Forces. No, unless you read a lot of policy, you don't, you don't realize that there's a lot of Islamist, fundamentalists, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda-backed extremists in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia, in Southern Philippines, in that area. So our job is to go down and kind of advise them on how to deal with the problems. How was that? How was it, like, working with working with locals, being on your first deployment? Like... It's kind of... I'd say it's kind of weird. It was, it was odd because as a... I think typically... You have a U.S. Army or U.S. Navy or U.S. Marine officer who's you know, fairly junior, like an O2 or an O3, and he'll go down range and he'll advise a host nation, you know, lieutenant colonel like O4, O5, O6, and there's kind of this really in America. America would be like this gigantic gap of proficiency and of experience. Well experience but kind of as um you know of authority but then you go down range and you, you kind of realize there's a new guy and you're like okay I'm a brand new seal i've only been doing this for two years and i'm advising this this special forces colonel has been doing it for 12 and it's not so much i'm advising him but i'm kind of representing america um 
that's kind of what I realize. You're, you're representing America as you go down range, and you're you're representing the, the special forces community. So it was it was I it was interest. I wouldn't say it was good. I didn't say it was bad. I just think it was an interesting situation that I was placed in. But it's fun to go down range and you know deal with real with real problems, not training problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of like a lawyer who practices for the bar and maybe does like mock juries and mock trials. And then it's like, okay, this is this is it. Here's your first case. And then you actually have to do what you've trained to do. Mm-hmm. That was kind of fun. Um, what, uh, sorry, someone's getting slightly antsy here, but she'll, uh, she'll remember that it's time to take a nap in just a second. Um, <laughs> me some serious side eye. That's side eye. Oh Man. God, mom, you suck. Um, anyways, so was that deployment one where you were, you were teaching a lot of locals as well, or was that in deployments more down the line that you were training them? Um, so, let's, let's go, I took notes on this. Man, you really are so prepared, it's so nice. I'll send you these notes afterwards. Okay, so, what is it like training the locals, what does it take to teach? You know, really, training the locals is just like, tra- if you're a, if you're a coach for someone in anything else, whether you're, whether you're a little league coach, whether you're a life coach for some executive, um, Training the locals is just like training them. Motivation is paramount. If they're not motivated to do the job, um, especially if you're in their country, you're in their land, um, you're in their backyard dealing with their problems, if they're not motivated to deal with the issues or motivated to get up every day and actually like put a foot forward and, and progress, we, you're going to stall work for forever. It's, you're just, it's not going to happen. You need to kind of figure out I mean, the best thing to do is, is figure out what motivates them. Are they motivated by, in the Middle East, they call it watsta. So are you motivated by social status? Are you motivated, um, some of the Eastern countries and you know, Eastern Europe, are you motivated by, uh, for lack of a better word, women and alcohol? Um, in, the, in South America, are you motivated by, you know, taking care of your village? We're going to take care of your village and we'll build wells and we'll build schools. Does that motivate you to kind of deal with the issues because if we're in a country if they're sending special forces to a country America has a pretty big investment in that country so whatever that investment is we probably have a there's probably a, a, a duly a, a dual goal that we have whether it's getting rid of terrorism or whether it's countering uh, malign influence from other countries or whether it's you, you know you name it keeping the locals down or if we want to Whatever it is, there's a dual interest we have, and you kind of need to figure out, okay, if this is the dual interest, how can we get to this, and how can we both get what we want out of the situation? I don't want anything. I'm getting paid. I'm, I'm a pawn of the U.S. government that's going to go here, but how can I motivate you to accomplish the goal that benefits both of us? Mm-hmm. That's, that's the hardest thing to do uh, when you go down range and you have to train someone. So is that how you, I mean, I assume you guys paid them in, in dollars to do that, but did you use their motivations to like make them want to work? So we don't pay them. Um, the actual, their government pays them. Okay. So they have their salaries and because they're, 
they're they're not like a, a ragtag group of locals who we brought together. They they have their own selection process and pipeline and in schools, and we're just down there advising them. Got it. Um, but if they're not, if they don't really care about the situation because it's a part of it's a part of their country that they don't really care about, and you know it's not affecting them living ma- thousands of miles away. Um, you run into certain areas where, you know, in the Middle East you have different tribes, and it's kind of like how do you make, how do you motivate these people to go, you know, pick up their weapons and go fight these people because they're because we've labeled them bad, but if these people don't have any qualms with if if this group doesn't have any qualms with that group over there, then they're, they're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the hard thing to, the hard thing to do is trying to find, I mean, it was easy, well, I'm not going to say it was easy, but when you have a group like ISIS who is going to go through and, and you talk to these people and say, they're going to come through and kill all of you and rape all your women and you know, absorb your entire community into theirs and then you will fall underneath their flag and you'll do tell you to do you know that's an easier sell to like hey you want to pick up guns and fight for this and actually have your freedom women do you want to walk around and go to school or do you want to fall underneath them that's a good motivating factor but for someone like the taliban who's you know if they don't have a good grip on a certain region if you're trying to get these people to go start a fight with the taliban they're going to say i'm good we got a good thing going right here. I pay him a little bit in tax for the whatever to keep my fields, and there's no issues. Because a lot of times, as Americans, we'll, as the U.S. government, will come in and say, "Oh no, this isn't right. We're going to do it because this is what it should look like." And then you you take out you take out a kingpin, or you take out you upset the balance of everything, and that's how ISIS was formed. We went through and wiped everything out, and then our president said, "Nope, we're withdrawing." I don't care. We're getting out of the war. And then you leave this giant power vacuum, and then what fills it? Whatever's around. Right. Whatever is the strongest. And usually in, in the real world, not American world, but in the real world, it's run by warlords. And it's run by, you know, gangs. And it's controlled by, most places are controlled not by governments. Did it ever blow your mind going to another, like, foreign country and seeing just how different it is? My dad is German. I grew up traveling a lot to uh, to Europe, German, Germany, Sw- uh, Switzerland, Austria, Italy. I traveled to a lot of a lot of countries in Europe, and one of my best friends at the academy was from Lithuania. So I've been to a lot of different countries. Um, kind of what not surprises me, but every time I go overseas. Um, and that was one of your one of your questions. Was like, uh, did you ever not want to come home from deployment? Oh or, yeah. Or even traveling. I was like, heck no. I wanted to. When you're at the end, you're at the end. You you wake up every morning in America and you say, huh, I'm not in danger of someone killing me, or I'm not going to be extorted. I have clean water to drink. I have a safe home. I have a roof over my head. I have. Luxuries like air conditioning and, and a car that moves. So, I think every time I go overseas, whether it's for work or for, I was just in Nepal for for fun for a month, and you know every time you go there and you come back home, you say, "Man, we are so fortunate to have what we have." Oh yeah. And so I think the first couple of weeks of me going overseas, it's just kind of like, "Wow, 
yeah, that's right. <laughs> this this is real and this exists. And it, you know, I'm not going to get into politics or uh, you know, kind of conservative versus liberal. But I hear a lot of things, and people tell me a lot of their opinions on how things should be. And I've lived in, I've lived overseas for, for work for many, many. I mean, I'd say cumulatively years. I've lived in mostly third world countries and very poor and I'm kind of, you know, not like I'm going to live in Prague. I'm living in places that have issues and yeah. and pe people who want to tell me what they think their opinion of the world is and how it should be. And it's like, well, having lived over there, that does what you're, what you're talking about doesn't really work because there's this thing called the human factor and we're not robots and we want to take care of what's ours. And we want to take care of our friends and our family first before we take care of other people. Because, and we want to, it's, I'm not going to say it's greed, but it's definitely, there's no one out there who says, yeah, I don't want any more money. I'm good. Unless your name's, unless your name's Bill Gates or like you found something. 99.9999% of the population would say, yeah, I'll take more money. How can I get it? And over here it's capitalism, but over there, it's uh, there's a lot of lawless or law least and less law environments that uh you know it, that's the real world. We live in this beautiful little bubble. That's the USA. But you know, go overseas sometime and just I'm not saying uh, hop on a plane to the you know middle of Iraq. But if the more you travel, the more it kind of opens people's eyes of like the rest of the world does not live like we do. No, I just, uh, prior to what, last month, the furthest I'd been out of the U.S. was Canada and Mexico, which, you know, barely count. <laughs> um, but last month I went to Israel for like two and a half weeks. And it, and Israel, like I was in safe places. I, you know, we went to, we went all over, but you know, you go to Tel Aviv and it looks just like the U.S. And hearing about a lot of like the geopolitical things that are going on and just learning a lot more about the Middle East and like actually getting to see Syria from a distance, but nevertheless getting to see it, it just blew my mind. And it gave me a very different perspective on the issues that I have in my life. Um, because yeah, we, you turn on the faucet, there's clean water. If I'm thirsty, I can go buy water. So kind of where I'm going with that is it made me rethink how how I view issues in my life and they just seem very small in comparison. Um, I don't, like I'm allowed to run down the street. That's totally fine. Um, where in other countries women aren't allowed to run. Um, does it ever, I don't know, piss you off or make you angry when you start to hear people complaining about like such little things? I'm not gonna say it pisses me off, but when people have certain views of, I I lean more way more conservative than I do liberal, and when people have views of how they think they believe the world, or not even the world, because that's getting even too big, but how America should be, and I, I go okay, well, and no offense to people who haven't traveled, but if you hadn't gone to Israel, the farthest you've gone is Cancun, Mexico, and. Canada. Um, no one really has a real idea of, it kind of goes back to humility, like no one is really humble enough to realize that they don't know how the real world works. 
and the real problems that are out there and this beautiful, you know, we need to do this, we need to do that, and it's not fair, and we're marginalized, and this isn't, and like, if you travel abroad, the more you do it, the more you realize, like, you don't have problems. You really don't. Um, you have issues that you that you, you don't think are fair, but at the same time, like, you don't have real problems, and people who complain about little shit, it's like, it's, it's it doesn't make me mad, but it frustrates me. Because they don't they don't have the humility to know that they don't know anything, and no offense to them, but they, what you read in the Economist or what you read in the, in the Wall Street Journal, it's not being there. Yeah. If you put if you put feet on the ground and you actually spend time in another country, I guarantee you, anyone who has opinion about say they have an opinion about I don't know, you know pick country X. If we pick you up and I put you in that country and you're there for a month, your opinion's going to change. hundred percent. You're a closed-minded, ignorant person. And me, I can have an opinion about X, and if you put me in that country for for two months, I'll have, I'll have changed my opinion because now I have more data to draw from. Yeah. And so that's kind of what frustrates me. Is the and that's what frustrates Europeans that I talk to. They say Americans you never travel. You never you haven't seen the world. You just you think everything is this, but it's not. Go, yeah. So after your first deployment, where did you, how many times have you deployed? I deployed three, soon to be four. Um, if I ask anything, you don't want to answer. You just let me know. Um, okay. Where all have you been? I've been to Southeast Asia. I've been to Africa. And I've been to um, Eastern Europe. Can I ask where you're going? I'm going to the Middle East. Okay. Um, is there a deployment that really stuck out for you? Um, each each deployment each deployment has a, had its own. They've all been very 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 different. Um, they've had each had its own challenges. Um, some things are a lot easier. Some things are a lot harder. Um, I think every deployment I've done, I've, I've kind of left and said, I feel like. We made a difference. I feel like we made something happen. I feel like the world is a slightly better place because of our actions and what we took. So, not not one. It's not like I had this. Like my buddy who I work with did Fallujah and Ramadi, and he just was really, really deep in it. And all the books you read about those two battles, and, uh, I don't have like a, a crowning. Achievement deployment, I guess. I think all everything I've done on deployments is, has been different, very, very different, but it's been equally as, you know, I think the guys I worked for at the end of deployment were grateful for all the hard work and effort we put in, my team put in, and what we accomplished. And we're, uh, we're very impressed with what we could do. Was, has there ever been a moment, whether it was in training or on deployment, that stuck out for you in the sense of, like, this is like there was there was a guy I interviewed a while back who had said that um he was in the Middle East on a deployment and there were kids running around without any shoes and shoes were not available so we put together a whole thing where people from the U.S. were sending shoes over to give to the kids and it was there were moments like that that really just stuck out as like 
this is why I do what I do to see that person's face or to see the impact that something's making. Is there anything like that that stuck out for you or that has, you're still in? Not really. There's not like one, I mean, the, the founder of Combat Flip Flops, uh, we've been talking to like his, I don't know if you know about him, Griffin, uh, I, forget his, I forget his full name, but he's the founder of Combat Flip Flops who like was a, Army Special Forces guy, and he realized that women needed, now that they've been liberated from the Taliban, they needed jobs to, you know, provide. So he he started this flip-flop company in Afghanistan to, for these women to be employed, and he sells them in the U.S., and it's a really awesome, amazing story. Um, with, with all the things I've done, I, I think there's some, some points when I'm deployed, and there's some situations where I sit there, and whether it's we just killed a bunch of Boko Haram uh, because they had this training camp that we found, you know, ended up, you know, killing in that way, or we're helping the partner force, like the partner, our partner force got shot up and we needed to get a med- medical attention and we saved a bunch of their lives. Or you're in a situation where you're kind of looking around and you're like, this is the shit they write movies and books about and I'm, I'm in it right now. Like, this is just... It's just kind of weird. It's like surreal, yeah, but it's not more of a, it's it's not one kind of situation that pops out. It's just kind of once in a while you you're st- and it's not all the time, but there's a couple times you're standing around. It's like this is wild. I can't believe, and I'm never gonna. No one's ever gonna know what happened, but I know. We know around us. Like this is just nuts, man. Has it ever been difficult for you to? I mean, as a seal, I assume there. There are things you can't talk about. Like, is it ever hard to, like, figure out where to put everything in your brain, knowing that it's not something... Like, for me, if, like, there's stuff going on, it's really helpful to, like, have a couple people I'm really close to, and I just, you know, talk to them about whatever's going on just to get it out of my own head. Can you do that, or how do you process some of the things you see or experience? You just kind of bury it, um... You know, if you're with your friends at the time and you're all experiencing the same thing, you talk about it. But when you leave and you go to different areas and different units, uh, and you're not with the guys who actually did it, you don't talk about things that... So if, if it's classified information, there's two things you need. Number one, you need the appropriate... So if it's top secret stuff, you need to have a top secret clearance or else you can't. you don't know about it. But say your page and you have a top secret clearance, and what I did was top secret. The other thing you ha- that you need is a need to know. Mm-hmm. Even if even if you have a top secret clearance, you don't. If you don't have a need to know, then you don't know about it. I have a top secret clearance, but I don't know about ninety nine point nine percent of the top secret stuff that goes on because there's no need for me to know. So if you're doing something, then it's not usually top secret. It's usually secret, whatever it is, whatever you're doing, you're not really. It's not really kosher to go talk about it with other people that weren't there because it's just none of their business. And you just kind of learn to kind of have two compartments in your head. Well, you have like hundreds of compartments, but we have like a separate compartment that's like, if you do something, you're like, no one ever needs to know about this. That goes into that piece way, way in the back. And you still remember it, but it's not something you are ever going to bring up or ever talk about unless. Unless some boss, some, one of your bosses needs to know about it, and then you, then you regurgitate it, and you pull it back out, and you 
kind of replay what happened and your opinions on it and your recommendations, and then you put it way back in the filing cabinet, like you know, like the like an Indiana Jones movie. It's like they take the ark and they move it, they put it put it back in the box, and then they put it in those warehouse with ten million other things. Was that something that was like hard for you to learn, or did that just come naturally? It just kind of comes with the job and, and experience. That's fair. I think as a as a junior guy or a junior person, you know, whatever you're doing, if if you're doing stuff like that and it's your first time, you're really excited, and it's not that you want to brag about it, but you want you want to tell people how cool it was, and you want to tell these stories, and because you want people to like you and you want people to know that you're the real thing, you're the real deal. You know, this is what I'm doing, and this is so amazing. Can you believe I did this, that, and the other? But the older you get, the less I care what people think about me. And I have a job to do. I do that job. I've been doing it for 10 years. And so I think people will assume that, like, yeah, there's, he's done a lot of stuff and he's, pretty, he's proud of what he did. But it just doesn't need to be brought up and discussed. Have you always been, like, this composed? You just, like, even, even when, you know, Parker and I met you at, at the wedding, you just, you're very put together. It always seems like you know, like you know where you're going with things. And again, I've, this is our second conversation. So, um, is that something that you've learned over the years? Is that something that you just innately have? Learned, learned to the job. Um, when you're put in really, really stressful situations where you need to you need, to, you need to make a split-second decision or you're in combat and there's life or death happening around you. Um, kind of when you live in that environment and you're used to, like, what the consequences are dire, uh, normal life is... There's really nothing... Someone can come up and yell in my face about something, scream in my face, like... Um, they didn't like that I was parked over the line in a, in a, in a this is a hypothetical situation. I'm in a parking lot of a supermarket and my wheel's touching the white line next to their car. And they can come up and just scream in my face, you asshole, and I'll just look at them and say, hey, I'm really, really sorry. You know, was not intended and it's not going to happen again. No, no worries. Um, there's just not really a reason to get upset about anything. So, you know, if you're in normal life, as, as a SEAL, if you're in normal life, it's like, this is easy. I don't have anyone threatening to kill me or my family or I don't need to worry about saving my buddies' lives or, you know, it's, it's a little, just like we talked about in America, there's no real problems. These are just very minor, minor problems that may be major to some people because that's all they know. So do you not feel like any, any form of PTSD? That's, it's like this weird topic, but... It's not this weird topic. It's a serious topic, but it's it's a weird it's a weird phenomenon because, and I've talked to a lot of people about this over the years, even recently. Um, some people's minds are just very like elastic and malleable. So, if you have a brain that's very plastic and rigid, say like a Tupperware container, and you have a, a brain that's you know softer, it's almost like a, you know like a like made of foam. You know, there's these experiences, and if you take a hammer and you hit the foam brain, 
it will deform the same and it'll come right back to eventually it'll come back out what it is and everything is, is normal but uh, if you hit the plastic one it's going to break it's going to chip or crack um, we don't know what makes people's brains malleable versus plastic um, there's there's guys who are in situations that they haven't even been in combat um, and I know but I know a couple of them they haven't even been in combat but since they know their buddies died and they saw the casket and they know what happened miles and miles away, not to them, they didn't pull a trigger, they have severe PTSD because of that incident, because they know that that happened. And then you have SEALs like my buddy who's been in, you know, countless tens, hundreds and hundreds of firefights and has killed, has killed people at close range, probably by it with his hands. And it's just the most happy-go-lucky guy, it's just like he knows it happened, but there's no PTSD from it. There's just he's just like that's a job I had to do. Um, I'm not proud of it, but I'm not ashamed that I had to do it. And it was just I felt neither joy nor sorrow. It is it was a job to do, and we did it. And that's kind of that. I don't have PTSD from anything I've, I've done. No. That just it, you're the second second person I've talked to that's like that. Another friend of mine's in 18 Delta and he I asked him about PTSD and he's like I don't know why but but I like I feel fine and he's still in as well but um yeah it's just it's interesting how different different people's brains work um so was there anything on any of your deployments that or anything just in the job that you have, moving on to a slightly later topic, um, that just was hilarious, that like when stuff was getting really tough, it just stands out as something funny that happened. I think most situations, like, we kind of have a really twisted sense of humor. I think if the average person heard stuff come out of our mouths or jokes we tell, they would just, they would be like appalled. <laughs> So I think in, in situations where you're getting shot at or, you know, it's just it's, things are getting really bad and, and unraveling, it's usually not unraveling to the point we don't have control over the situation. And you're usually just laughing about it. You're like, I can't believe this is happening, but this is happening. And you know what? We're just going to do it because that's what we do. And so I, I think humor... Not, Humor helps us deal with it, but also just keeping a positive attitude towards things. That's one big thing that I notice as a SEAL. If, if things, times get stressful, you just smile and you're like, we got this. And other people around you will just, they get furious and they scream and they cry. And I'm like, you're not, you're not helping solve the problem here. You are making the problem worse because of your attitude. So please snap out of it. Put a, put a big smile on and we're going to do this because it's not really that big of a deal. So, there's, yeah, there's a lot of situations in deployment where you're just like, I can't believe this is happening right now, but this is happening. And we're going to deal with it. It's not really a big deal. Got it. Um, on the flip side of that, is there... So someone actually asked, so I did a interview recently where the roles were reversed and it was me being interviewed and the person asked me this question and I just remember thinking Jesus okay you know that question sucks and you're an asshole <laughs> but it's a good question I ask it in all of my interviews um what was your lowest low and how did how did you get through it 
Going back to my notes. Um, that's not a hard question. I have a friend. I have a friend named Greg Dolly, who's one of the smartest people I've ever met in my whole life, and uh, he does interviews for his. He was working for a job or a company called Keep Trucking, and he did interviews, mock interviews for some of the guys that we were putting through, and his interviews were like the CIA was interrogating you. It was, it was like, oof, like made you super uncomfortable. Describe my lowest low and how I got through this. Um, going back to training, you go through some really low lows. Um, going through SEAL training, and you go through some pretty high highs. So that kind of sets the benchmark for like what, what a low low really is. Um, having a positive mindset gets me through just about everything, anything and everything in life. I've had a lot of... I wouldn't say I've had a lot of hardship, but I've dealt with a lot of things in life that people, including a divorce, and people go, how did you get through that? Like, Because it's positive mental attitude. It's positive mindset. It's positive self-talk. It's not, oh, we're not good enough. This is terrible. This is bad. Because if you do that, then you kind of believe it. But um, I do, and I'm reading my notes, just like anyone else, I think a lot of SEALs, including myself, use alcohol as kind of a numbing agent. If you have to deal with extremely situ- stressful situations, whether it's a work situation, a home situation, a life situation, uh, alcohol is definitely used as a numbing agent. But really, to kind of get through situations or stressful times, I think having a good solid group of friends, a good friend base, and a good family that you can lean on uh, is probably the most important thing. And if you go through SEAL training, you usually, you know, no matter who you are, you're going to have, you know, 10, 15, 20 guys that you can call up and count on for anything. You can confide in, uh, who will help you through, who will help carry the load for you because, you know, they know that you're there for them if they need it as well. So I don't really have a specific lowest low point. Um, I have a couple of low, low points, but um, either having a, a girlfriend who really cares about you or having a friend group or having peers at, at work that are going to help you through and say, hey, we got your back. That's that's kind of how you how you deal with a lot of these situations. It's, kinda, it's really hard to do it by yourself. Yeah. Um, like, what if, what if it's something you don't feel like you can you can talk too much about like some of the things that you've seen that you put into that compartment and then it's like handled and it's top secret and you can't go into it. Has that ever happened where it's like, that's, that's the low, low and that's the thing that you're dealing with. No, low lows have been outside of work, normal life things. Mm. Not to sound, not, I don't want this to come out wrong, but if something happened and I got fired from my job tomorrow, I show up and I say, clean your shit out. You're done. Um, I would I would not be happy and I would fight it tooth and nail but if there's something that was out of my control and said you're done hang up hang up the spurs get out of here it wouldn't be the end of the world for me I'd be really upset for a while and it would it'd be a big blow but there's so much more to life than what being a Navy SEAL is that you know the biggest stressors I have come from real life situ- real life scenarios that I have to deal with where it's you know, the, the death of your parents, well, it hasn't happened, but, you know, death of my parents is going to be a big one. Um, losing any loved one, family, uh, going through a stressful breakup and, and divorce, um, 
financial stresses. There's a lot of there's there's a lot of low stuff that you can do, but you just kind of like again going back into what we talked about earlier, taking it one bite at a time. It's not going to last forever. You're not going to go through a divorce for six years. You're not going to even if you're paying out alimony and you're a guy and you're you're feeling like this is I, I, you know my finances are suffering and I'm stressed about this. It's it's a set period of time. And you just kind of buckle, whatever it is in life, you buckle down and you deal with it. So it's kind not, of like embrace, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Yep, yeah, no, you go, embrace the suck. Mm-hmm. Where'd, so where'd you hear that? Uh, a Green Beret friend of mine, Mike Glover, he introduced me to that saying, and it's kind of stuck since then. <laughs> There's that, and then Jocko just did a podcast, one of his things was good. It's like, we didn't get what we wanted, good, and it's... You should listen to it. It's, it's Jocko Willick on good. It's just like when things are going wrong, good. That's that's fine. Things are going wrong. Um, I kind of have mixed feelings about that. I think embrace the, embrace the suck. Um, embrace the suck if it's something you can't change and um, isn't really going to hurt you or hurt other people around you. Um, if we're getting shot at and I'm in a Sam in a foxhole with my buddy, and there's six of us, and two guys got shot. I'm not going to look over him and say, "Hey, boys, embrace the suck. We're all going to die because we're going to get killed by ISIS." Like, there's a difference between embrace the suck of embrace the suck through a workout, embrace the suck of going through a diet that you don't want to do, but you need to to hit your butt to hit um, fitness goals. Embrace the suck of saving money every month and you can't go out and party because you have bills to pay and you have goals of owning a house. Embrace the suck of something that's going to be positive on the outside. Don't embrace the suck of, I'm an alcoholic. Embrace the suck. Uh, my family hates me. No one's, I don't have any friends. Embrace that suck. Don't, don't embrace negative things. Hmm. Embrace things that are, are going to be coming out good on the backside. I like that. Yeah. I like that, just like going through buds. Going through buds. What's the, you know, what's the end goal here and how are we going to get to it? Yeah, embrace that suck. That's going to suck in, immensely. But when you're done, it's not going to suck anymore. And you'll have accomplished something that I think less than 10,000 people in the world in history, or maybe we're up to like 15,000 now, in history have ever done. And you're like, I want to do that. Well, then embrace the suck to get there. But don't embrace the suck in something that's not going to get you in a good situation. Right. Um, on those same li- along those same lines, um, Dan had mentioned something to me about you, you training smart. That you train a little bit differently than other people sometimes. Would you elaborate on that? Training smart. Um... So one of Dan's phrases is little and often over the long haul. Uh, I'm going to be 33. I, I've i been in pretty good shape, but I think the best shape I'm going to be in my life is probably going to happen in the next two to three years because I'm training smarter. I'm being healthier. Um, I have the capital I need to take care of you know what I need to take care of. Um, I think I train smarter because I don't go as hard all the time. Let's take an NFL player. NFL player is training hard year-round and dieting and 
is constantly working out and constantly, you know, trying to be at the top of his game physically, physically and mentally. Well, there's a reason that the average career for an NFL player is like two to three years because you can't be on the top of your game forever. You can't be, you know, if you're working out, you can't be doing CrossFit every day and going as hard as you possibly can for, for 10 years because life is going to happen. You're going to deal with stressors at work. You're going to deal with stressors at life. You're going to get injured. You're going to have family problems. If you're trying to go 100% all the time, you're not going to, it's just not going to end well. You know, it's unsustainable. And I think what I do is, you know, the little and often over the long haul, I'm not trying to break any records in the weight room. I'm not trying to be the fastest or the strongest or the biggest or the best look, you know, most chiseled guy out there. I just want to make sure that when I'm 80 or 90 years old that I can still, you know, take care of myself, move up and down stairs, chase grandkids around. That's my, like, that's my goal. My goal is not the five-year I'm going to be the best of the best and, and break my body because I want to be 250 pounds and bench press 600 pounds and all of the crazy shit that guys do. It's like, I, I think I train smart because I just, I know my limits and I know when to, I know when to take a day off or two days or a week off or a month off. If you, if it doesn't feel right, then, you know, yeah, I'm not going to, I don't look as good as, you know, half the seals out there, but at the same time, I, I think I have longevity. I think Dan sees that and says, I think you're doing the right thing, Andrew, because in 30 to 40 years, you're going to look good. You're going to look like you uh, are moving normally versus guys who just, you know, go way, way too, like, I've seen guys deadlift 700 pounds. I'm like, that's cool. But number one, our job is not to lift weights. (laughs) Our job is not to deadlift. And number two, and when you're like 50, your knees are really going to start hurting you because you're, you're, you're kind of breaking your body down. Yeah. Well, yeah, and even so much earlier than that, I mean, I've talked to so many people who say, yeah, I mean, I was, I served for so many years and that's, you know, you're an athlete. Your job, I mean, obviously your job is more than just being an athlete, but... That's a lot of what you do. You're functioning at an incredibly high level and doing incredibly high level difficult things that involve a high level of athleticism. It's a lot of high level, but um, but yeah. So I think that doing less, well, not doing less, but not not taking it. It's like Dan says the same thing about finance. You know, you should be saving a little bit every single month. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be trying to save everything in two months of the year and then coasting for 10 months like it's way easier to save just just save a little bit at a time absolutely um let's see there was one story i definitely wanted to ask you about the where where you gotta you i speak one language um <laughs> will you tell me about the day you were beat up from a certification <laughs> The infamous bike ride. Yes. So I just met Dan. I, I met Dan. And we came to a workshop, and that's when we just we just clicked and became friends. This is uh, 2011. And then going back to training smart, um, we go to the Salt Lake City based uh, 
gym that's known for their workouts and are known for creating, turning you from a fat slob into a guy that looks, looks like uh, Thor. And we went to a three-day seminar because they do it for special, they have a good relationship with special forces. And we go to the seminar and they want to teach you everything. They want to teach you their whole philosophy and mindset and their programming uh, in three days. That's really like two and a half days. So over the course of the day, you're doing like four to five really heinous workouts, like stuff that's just, just really tough. Like doing one of those uh, a day is tough, but like we're doing like th- we're doing like four or five of these workouts, and some of them are just just absolutely terrible. And so I knew Dan. I'd met Dan months ago, so we were in contact. I'm like, hey, I'm at I'm at Gym X. Where do you, don't you live in Salt Lake? He goes. Yeah, those are my buddies. I'll come by and say hi. And so he came over and he talked a little bit, but like their mindset and Dan's mindset are, are not are not aligned. And so at the end of it, Dan's like, when are you leaving? I said, I'm leaving Saturday afternoon. We're done Friday. He goes, come over to my house Friday night. We'll have some drinks, have some dinner. And I got up on Saturday morning. And I just tried to move around. And let's, do, let's do a workout. Let's do something in the gym. And he's looking at me. He's like, I got a great idea. Take these POS bikes from Walmart. He's got <laughs> two beach cruisers. He goes, let's, let's go on a bike ride. I'm like, yeah, what about let's do some, you know, I just did some deadlifts. Let's, you're Dan, you're like a, you're a strong man. Let's do something like that. He's like, no, we're going to go on a bike ride. And I'm going on this bike ride. And like halfway through the bike ride, I, I kind of turn to him and I go, this isn't, this isn't just a bike ride. You're doing this on purpose for something. <laughs> And he just kind of like, just kind of shrugs his shoulders. And we kind of get done with that. And it, it, it didn't click right away. It took, I think it took a week, but I, I called him. I was like, Dan, I was so beat up from that that I needed that bike ride to kind of recover. And this is, I was young. I was like a 23, 24-year-old SEAL. Like, everything I knew was like rock, hammer, smash. <laughs> Like, there's no such thing as taking a, do- a down day or an off day or recovery because you're young and you just went through buds, so you're just going to keep doing it. And I think that's, I was so beat up, and then that bike ride kind of made me realize, like, you don't need to go 100% all the time. Yeah. And nor should you because it's unsustainable. You need to have the days, you know, in life. You need the bike ride days in life. You need to, if you get up someday and you're just, just treat yourself to a massage or, you know, you have so much going on with work. Take a weekend you can afford to and fly somewhere you want to go and just recharge the batteries. Sometimes that's going to pay. I was getting pretty stressed with life. That's why I, me and a couple of friends, we said, we're going to Nepal for a month. We're going to hike to Everest Base Camp. There's no cell phones. There's no, there's nothing. We're just going to go do this and kind of recharge. And I was gone for, I took a month off work. And I came back so recharged. Like, that was probably the most healing vacation I think I've ever taken in my life. And I, I highly encourage people to, you, you don't think it's going to make a huge difference, but if you really just unplug, you take time for you, that's when you're going to, that's when your performance is going to increase because it's not sustainable just to do it day in and day out for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. Which is strange because I feel like that so much of what the focus on, 
focus is on in the world and social media and things like that. It's like, well, keep going and, you know, push harder and no days off and it's not sustainable and it's not healthy. That and this, I mean, I do have an Instagram handle, but, um, you know, I've, being single, I date girls and a lot of people my age and younger have, it's, they live their lives on Instagram. And one thing about Instagram is you, you, you see these people around you and you go, okay, these, in, from an outsider's perspective, you don't really understand it. You look at someone like, say you follow my Instagram account and you start looking at this and say, oh my God, you have the most amazing life of anyone who's ever lived. <laughs> um, you travel the world and you paraglide and you scuba dive and you go spearfishing these exotic locations and you're just an Everest. Like You were the most amazing person in my life pales in comparison to yours because because I'm not cool like that it's like guys when you look at it guys and girls when you look at Instagram understand that they're taking the the highlight of the highlight reels of their life they're taking pictures they're taking thousands of pictures they pick one so in the good situations they take thousands of pictures and they pick one to doctor it up to make it look the most amazing part and just they want to show the best part of themselves but they didn't take pictures of the 99.9% of their life where they're at work and they're paying bills and they're picking up dog poop and, and they're doing all the unflattering things of life so that's that's kind of the problem I have with Instagram is you know everyone thinks that it, it should be like this and social media says oh social what I read says I need to do this every single day and you know, I should do that, and it's like, okay, well, there's there's what people say you should do, and what, what you think you should do, versus what you actually should do, and that's taking days off, and maybe not going to the gym, and breaking your body again, because it's better for you to go home, eat a salad, and get some sleep. Yeah. And yeah, you might not reach your goals, let me, let me rephrase that, you might not think you're going to reach your goals as fast as you want to, but in reality, if you train hard enough that you get injured, that just sets you back three weeks anyways, so you just need to know where to ride that edge of where that stress edge is, or where the, what is the, you know, the mental edge of work or life, and like, how hard can you go until you realize you need to throttle back? Because if you go too much at work, you're going to burn out. If you go too much in the gym, you're going to get injured. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then maybe you're three weeks out and maybe you are a surgery out and then you have to start all over again. Absolutely. Um, let's see. want to ask... Okay, just two more questions. Um, okay, what piece of advice has impacted your life the most? You know, I've gotten advice from my family, my friends, my family. Uh, gotten advice from people I trust at work. Gotten advice from mentors like Dan John or Greg Daly or Ray Magnuson or all the people that, that made big impacts in my life. Um, I don't think there's one really, there's not one piece of advice, but I've, what I've realized I've only retained maybe 10% of the advice that's been given to me for various reasons. And I make a mistake at some point in my life, and if it's a big mistake, I look at it and I go, shit, 
And then somewhere away in the back of my head is there's a voice that says, like, I told you not to do that, and you didn't listen to me. You go, shit. So I don't really have any any one piece of advice in my, in my life that, I, that I've kind of used. But I guess my... It's tough. I have different advice that I would say would be important for different people. As a, as a SEAL officer, there's advice I'd give to them. As a SEAL enlisted, there's advice I'd give to them. If I'm starting a podcast, there's advice I'd give. If you're transitioning out of the military, there's advice I'd give. If you're trying to lose weight, there's advice I'd give. Um, I just think it depends on the person, and it all depends on situations. But um, listen to people around you. Take notes. Maybe write down it. If you think it's good advice, maybe write it down and look at it later and kind of reassess. That's good advice. Um, and final question, um, because I know you're a busy guy and we've been talking for about two hours, so I really <laughs> appreciate your time. Um, will you talk to me a little bit about Elite Meat and what you have coming up? So a quick plug for Elite Meat. Uh, I was founded by a guy named John Allen, who was a SEAL with me on an East Coast SEAL team. Uh, we didn't work together, but I knew of him. Um, something that's been a problem, and it's becoming less of a problem now, but uh, SEALs and Green Berets and uh, Air Force, Special Forces guys, have been getting out of the military since their program started. Well, you know, since SEALs have been around since 1962. So SEALs have been getting out of the military since 1962. However, there's not really formalized organizations. There weren't formalized organizations that said, wow, these guys really bring something to the table. Let's go recruit them. If you go to Stanford or Wharton or Harvard, you know, the minute you step on campus, you have people trying to recruit you because they understand, even, even before they go to school, they understand who they are, what they bring, and their, their, their capability. And John kind of realized, like, hey, yeah, these SEALs are getting up who are incredible uh, leaders, incredible mentors, and just workers, and if they have ethics, and they have the humility they need to learn new jobs, um, there wasn't around. So he started this company called Elite Meat, which kind of connects the top, we, the motto is can connect the top 1% in the military with the, with the top 1% in business. And so I started working for them, kind of a pro bono, I was always pro bono, but I started working for them when I was uh, when I was at various SEAL teams and going through my career, and then um, just helped stand up a bunch of great programs for these guys to help them transition. And that's how I met some of the guys who are my mentors. Like I was telling you, um, Greg Dolly was the most, like, I would get nervous. I'm not a nerve. I don't get nervous. I would get nervous to do an interview with Greg Dolly just because his it's like a beautiful mind. <laughs> like, like he's he's already has the script and anything you say he uh, it's, it's terrifying it's a terrifying process but i've met people like that through the through the nonprofit work i did through elite me and they're doing really good stuff and getting guys kind of helping them find employment and finding meaning outside outside their their jobs because if you're a seal for 20 years say you come in after high school you're a seal for 20 years that's all you know and you don't know unfortunately there's a knowledge gap. You don't know that you can go out in the real world and really make a difference and, and have a really rewarding job that has nothing to do with combat, that has nothing to do with shooting. Um, you can have a really 
you could do great jobs you know, selling commercial real estate just because of the mindset you have. And then the flip side is it's the knowledge gap, knowledge deficiency that top organizations and top companies, they look at a SEAL and they say, uh, there's a funny story, but we, there were some guys that went up to Google that were SEALs. There's like four or five of them. And they were really interested in tech. And they said, we really would like to go apply for a job at Google. And Google found out there were SEALs. And they're like, yeah, that's great. We'd love to have you. And they came to the interviews and were walking them around. And Google had said, in their minds, they thought, like, yeah, you're SEALs. We're hiring you for security. You're our, our external security guards because that's what we need. And the SEALs were like, no, we don't want to be your security guards. We want to work for you. Uh, we want to work for Google, a tech startup. And there's this huge, they're looking at each other like, how did you not know this? And so we're, we're trying, Elite Meets trying to correct that, trying to close that gap. And they're doing a great job. I love that. How do you, how would somebody find out more about Elite Meet? How would they get involved? It's a 501c3 nonprofit. Well, we've been around for two years. Uh, it's just go, just Google Elite Meet, M-E-E-T, and it's EliteMeet.us. But if you put it in Google, you'll find out. You can read the testimonies. Um, they're just with any donation, small or large, is greatly appreciated because we're all nonprofit, and I'd say eighty percent of us are just working because we. I was working there because I didn't want, I didn't need the money, I didn't get any money. I I worked there because I believed in, in what we were doing, and I think it's, it's all most of it's volunteer. There's only like two or three paid employees, but you know it's, they're they're really making a difference in in the way that. Special operations veterans are coming in the world, coming into the real world. I love it. Thank you. Thank you for taking this time out of your day. Thank you for saying yes to this interview. I just, you're an incredible person, and I'm, I'm really grateful to have uh, gotten to learn a little bit more about your story. Thank you, Paige. You're pretty cool yourself. Thank you. Lobster Liberty. Where's the hat? Where's the plug for Lobster Liberty? Oh, That's duh. amazing. <laughs> Come on. Lobster Liberty. I am plugging that organization all day long on this podcast. That's um, amazing. Yeah, I. I've learned so. I mean, I've just learned so much more than just about training dogs. It just has taught me a ton about myself, and um, it's allowed me to be in touch with so, so many incredible people. And you know, people ask all the time, "Well, how do you do this?" You know, you have to you train a dog and then you give it away, and it's just like that's not that's not what it's about. It's about giving back to someone like you who's been willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice and it's a way to give back. So, um, and I get to play with puppies, so it's really, it's not that bad.